This is episode 52 of the Immunology Podcast, Lymphoma Immunotherapy with Dr. Joshua Brody. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcasts, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Josh Brody from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai on the podcast to talk about his work studying basic and applied tumor immunology for the development of cancer immunotherapies, and particularly for lymphomas and melanomas. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first, don't forget that Immunology 2023 is only a few weeks away. So excited. And if you're attending the meeting, make sure to stop by the Immunology Podcast booth in the exhibitor hall. You can learn more about the podcast and take home some cool swag. And Jason and I will be recording interviews with attendees in an on-site studio. So if you want to come and be part of the podcast, make sure to join us. To learn more about the meeting and view the PAC program, visit www.immunology2023.org. Have you gone through everything yet and picked your talks? Not yet. Uh, I was on holidays, as, as I mentioned in the last episode. So uh, now it's back to work and I will be scheming uh, through that uh, list and find the best talks. Did you check at all? No, I usually do it the day before, especially I'll be in DC the day before it anyway. So I'll probably spend an hour in the hotel, like planning everything out and then checking with you since that way I won't go to you what you go to. Yeah, we should go to different talks. Make sure we cover the whole breadth of immunology. Yeah. Speaking of the breath immunology, I know stem cell has a new, uh, what immune cell are you? So what immune yeah. cell are you, Brenda? And thus, what talks are you going to be going to? Well, apparently, uh, I'm a memory B cell. So I was a bit disappointed. Are you sad that you're not a T cell? I No, I just go where the data sends me. And, uh, you know, it does say that I'm a memory B cell, which means that I'm resourceful, reliable, and my creativity shines when faced with fa complex problems. So not I'm bad. not going to say no to that. What do you think I ended up as? I mean, you would like to be an enterocyte, but that's probably not in the list because it's not but an immune cell. I'm pretty close to an enterocyte. Mm, a macrophage? I am indeed a macrophage. You're a macrophage. Did you select all the, I go to meetings and I eat uh, uh, options? Or... <laughs> yeah, but there's other stuff. I love to have everything planned out and organized and welcome a challenge when it comes my way. Okay. That sounds a lot like you, I have to say. The okay. only thing you enjoy more than bringing your team to victory is going out for celebratory dinners after. That is, uh, I would say... Weirdly uh, specific, and I would say quite accurate. Um, I, I, I would concur. Yeah. Okay. I mean, in my case, it says that my teammates know they can trust my extensive knowledge to help them find out what went wrong, and people are always excited excited to see me at meetings. That's very good. People just want expect me to get stuff done and then eat food, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right, so so I guess that if your listeners want to know which immune cell, they can check the 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 quiz from Step Cell, and and can get a little nice uh, googly eyes uh, cell as a they, as a at the end of the quiz. They are adorable. All right, I'll start it off. Um, it's been a while, so it's back to COVID. 
a little bit. Not um, again. Well, it's here with us always. So, you know. That being said, this one is in cell. It's the T cell directed vaccine BNT162B4, encoding conserved non spike antigens, protects animals from severe SARS CoV 2 infection. So, this is from BioNTech. First author is Christina Arieta. Last author is Asaf Poran. This can be summed up pretty quickly if you kind of get to the problem statement. So, right now, the vaccines all target the spike region. Spike region seems to mutate more than everything else. We've seen that it doesn't create great neutralizing antibodies over time to new variants. They're playing, constantly playing catch up. But we know that the main component, the main effect for the protection against SARS-CoV-2 is the T cell response that you get, right? The, the memory T cell response. So the question is, well, hey, would it be a better strategy long-term to find a non-variant region and use that to generate a uh, vaccine, knowing you're not going to have the necessary, the B cell components that you always want, but to really get those T cells nice and where they are and not have to worry about variant drift over time. And so that's what BioNTech did. And they show that they, they, they take multiple epitopes when they build this out from non-variant regions. And so I, I got to get to the picture to remember this all, but it's, it's the, the mRNA they use is partial protein epitopes from different parts of, that are non-variant that have been shown in other studies to have HLA antigen presentation, right? So they tried to pick stuff that the immune system would, would go after. So they do the open reading frame. They pick another couple of part of the open reading frame. They pick a couple other portions of it that I'm going to try to grab here, but I have to get deep dive in the text of the paper and um, combine this all together. And so they did NM non-structural proteins in the open reading frame one portion and different parts, put that together and then let that get expressed. And they basically showed that on its own and enhancement with basically the Pfizer vaccine, right? The, the BioNTech Pfizer Omicron variant, right? That show that you have protection against severe disease in, I believe, hamster models of SARS-CoV-2, and then it's enhanced protection on top of the other vaccine. So there's not much more to describe here. Go read the paper if you're really interested, but fundamentally taking conserved portions and saying, let's let's ignore preventing, you know, because when you do the spike protein, the advantage of raising antibodies against that is the virus can't enter, you're going to block infection. But we've seen that that does not work as a great strategy. And so, hey, punt, let's just get the maximum T cell response. And so they went after that and they got it. So I think it could be an interesting one-time vaccine that could come out as an adjunct to help protect against um, severe disease. So do you understand correctly that it's, uh, it's not like you have both the spike and this other... Not in this treatment. They do them separately. So they showed that, hey, if you gave them one and then the other, they enhanced each other. If you did just this when you got the T-cell protection as well. Mm. And so, so they, you know, they, did, they did that work. All right, but there's really no point. I mean, nowadays, everyone's, most people are vaccinated with the spike. Right, but the idea is this adds enhanced protection on top of that and is non-variant regions. So as we drift more and more from whatever, instead of chasing a spike, it could just be a one and done with this. So it's yeah. the non-variant regions of the virus. And the idea is that this will be protect against the worst of the disease and, uh, and for hopefully long COVID and things like that. 
Yep. Do they discuss that at all? They don't talk about long COVID at all. I mean, they're really talking about a quick, a robust T-cell responses. Okay. Okay. Well, it's, I wonder if that will become a part of a vaccination strategy. I mean, we already have the, the, the Omicron uh, bivalent vaccine. So they've been changing the formulation. So I guess if you can justify the change, it should be possible. All right. So uh, let's move to all the other type of protection from pathogens, but not by adaptive immunity, but uh, the power of innate immunity in protecting against infections. Um, this paper was I'm going to talk about um, was published in Immunity. First author Gavin uh, Chern Y B from the lab of Jeffrey Weiser at the New York University, um, and it's titled "Age-Dependent Differences in Efferocytosis Determine the Outcome of Opsonophagocytic Protection from Phagocytic Protection from Invasive Pathogens." And that's a mouthful for a non-English, non-native speaker, I have to say. Basically, and it's just a lot of fancy words I have to say in the, the in that in the title. They could have said basically um, age-dependent differences would be in eating out of discarding neutrophils, um, change of protection by optimization from pathogens. So basically, what they do is in this they study a phenomenon in which neonates. Uh, so uh, babies just very recently born in the first days after being born, um, it is known that they are they have different they they have different susceptibility against particular pathogens that are uh, quite uh, virulent in adults, but not in neonates. And it's and a clear why would newborns be protected against these infections? Often it is assume that partly is because they get protection from their mothers, from the antibodies from, from their mothers while they are, um, and then for leftovers of, from during gestation and also they get from, from, uh, from mother's milk. But in this case, um, the authors tried to look for other mechanisms. And I think they find something very interesting. So they, they put it, the point in case is infection uh, by um, streptococcus pneumoniae that is not very severe in, in neonates. Um, and so they use this as a model to study why are neonates faring better with this particular infection. And what they do is they... they um, in fact, they have uh, neonates, uh, very young uh, pups from, from mice, and they have this mouse model in which they infect the, the, the pups. And they show indeed that newborns are less, um, they, they, they control the infection better, basically. And that this, this only lasts for the first week or so, and then young pups don't have this anymore. And when they try to find the reasons for this, they show that this is dependent on the neutrophils uh, from, this, from these mice. And they show that the neutrophils in neonates have a particularly, have a different phenotype from those that they see in adults or even in juvenile uh, mice. Basically, they have this phenotype that is associated with aged um, neutrophils that have been in circulation for longer than the 
kind of mean uh, lifespan of, of a neutrophil. And particularly, uh, they look at the expression of CD11B uh, in the surface of these neutrophils uh, that seems to really uh, be involved in the way that they are fighting the streptococcus uh, infection. So long story short, they, they, they show that neonates have more of these older, so to say, neutrophils that have a high expression of CD11B, which is part of these beta-2 integrin complex that recognizes complement protein, particularly complement protein C3. And this C3 is deposited on bacterial surfaces and therefore makes these neutrophils better at phagocyting opsonized bacteria. And that this uh, this 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 is a pathway by which neonates have en enhanced protection against particular bacteria that are opsonized by C3. And what is interesting is that when they look at the reason why are these neonates having more of these neutrophils that normally would have been taken up and 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 removed from circulation because they are kind of aged out, they use some markers CD62L low. Uh, expression uh, characterizes these these neutrophils as well, and they also and they show that this partly can be attributed to the lack of macrophages that are expressed in CD one hundred and sixty nine. These are uh, monocyte derived macrophages that partly because the immune system is kind of being set up in these neonates, they are not very present and they are very heavily involved with removing neutrophils from circulation that are old enough. So basically, what they what they show is that because uh, these macrophages are not as present, they don't, there's this age-dependent ephyrocytosis. Uh, so this is the uptake and the, the removal by phagocytosis of these age cells by macrophages. And this results in an increased amount of neutrophils that seems to be protective in neonates. And this is specific against some uh, bacteria, but not all. Uh, there are some that don't are not opsonized by C3. So against these bacteria, these, these neutrophils don't offer an enhanced protection. So I think it's very interesting uh, insight into um, the differences between neonatal and adult immune systems. And this must have um, some kind of evolutionary uh, benefit for, for, for neonates. Or it could be a fluke, right? Like they're old because the system to recycle them comes online after the system to make them. And yeah, you get this thing which happens to let them live better. Yeah, but then you keep it. So yeah, so you were never then or you were never then evolved to process it sooner. Exactly. Because it gives you an advantage, I guess. So very interesting. Very interesting. I don't think about neutrophils enough sometimes. When I read this paper, I'm like, I should give them more credit. They are, you know, the frontline soldiers that die for all of us every day. Yeah. Thank you for your service, neutrophils. Thank you. So, do you have another heroic cell to share today? No, I don't have anything about neutrophils. Um, I just have lung cancer. We've got a paper coming out of Nature here published April 12th. Uh, Antibodies against endogenous retroviruses promote lung cancer immunotherapy. First author is Kevin Ning. Last author is George Casotis, and the paper looks at, there's apparently a tracer program, which is a database of lung cancer, tracing not, tracking non-small cell lung cancer evolution through therapy. And it's a, it's a long data set. 
And what they're looking at is, um, you know, hey, sometimes these cancer therapy, these cancers respond to immunotherapy and sometimes they don't. And why? What's actually going on here? And there's been known that an association with, with pericancer tertiary lymphoid structures, so ectopic lymphoid tissues, is associated with a better outcome. So if you take a biopsy of the cancer and see all this lymph nearby, your cancer is going to have a better outcome. But that's all that was known. And they established that that is indeed causative, and it's caused through B cells driving cytotoxic T cells um, and, and driving through a CX-CL13-dependent mechanism to create these tertiary lymphoid structures. And um, they even identify an anti-tumor antibody target that seems to be working through a lot of this, which is very interesting, which I think is the most interesting part of it. And that's they found endogenous retrovirus envelope glycoproteins are a dominant antibody. So we have endogenous retroviruses in our body, and they found that tumors with this endogenous retrovirus in it are thus more likely to express, you know, an HLA with that on there, and you get antibodies to that, and that actually helps lead to cancer killing. Now, at baseline, the whole setup of the cancer is very immunosuppressive. Right. And so they show that checkpoint inhibitor therapy is really important to undo this and, and get it going. But that if you have the checkpoint inhibitor, you're going to have a better response in this environment. So it um, provides a basis for the mechanism between this known phenomenon of tertiary lymphoid structure formation and immunotherapy response. And that in the, when you have the immune checkpoint removed, you can then activate the suppressed pathway. But if the suppressed pathway is not there, it doesn't work. So they use a lung adenoma model, uh, which is based on orthotopic growth. They do mostly this in mice. It's a KRAS-driven mutant and TRP53. They show that these tumors in general do just create this tertiary lymphoid structure in the mouse model to be able to relate it to human findings with the work that they're doing. They show that there's anti-tumor antibodies in the serum that target an ERV. That's an endogenous retrovirus. They can take the serum from one mouse and give it to another and show you still have a response and the serum is driving it. Hence, it is a B-cell response leading to then T-cell killing, right? You know, the standard, standard thing we love our immune systems to do. And so they map out the serum. They, shoot, they then, you know, screen the serum, identify that antibody. They can then deplete the antibody and get rid of the effect. Um, and they show that PDL1 blockade boosts the response. And then show that then, you know, and then RNA seek it, of course, because you got to have your single cell RNA seek, that the B spell responses are being what's driving the whole thing. And that CXCL13 therapy, so adding that in or, you know, pushing that generates this, this tertiary lymphoid tissue. And so maybe the idea is that, hey, can we create the tertiary lymphoid tissue in these cancers? which then with immune checkpoint blockade <clears throat> will get you the better response because we know they relate to each other. And now it seems to be causative and important for killing. Ergo, let's make it happen. And so that's where it extends into people, or at least what they're trying to do. And they show that there's more BOSL responses in patients with cancer who respond, right? So they're showing that this pattern of behavior and correlation response is what we see in people as well, right? More tertiary lymphoid tissue, more B-cell response, more killing, more response to checkpoint therapy. And that there's also these antibodies in people. And there you go. I think it's very nice. And I like the 
I think there's a lot of potential in looking into these retrovirals, like endogenous retroviral um, sequences that get uh, expressed by cancer cells that have kind of a dysregulated expression pattern. And it's very cool because presumably they would be shared amongst different tumors. So you might be able to find is that kind of a true new antigen because they're usually not expressed, they're not part of any regular expression uh, in any cell in particular, at least some of these loci. Um, so I think it's really cool to to use them. Um, and I didn't know that, well, you can actually see B cell responses against these, these uh, particular antigens. Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was pretty neat. And you know, now, now that you're a memory B cell, you should really feel tightly feel- linked to this paper. <laughs> Yeah, I feel a kinship to this, to these cells doing their work. Uh, you know, well, I also think that the 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 role of the TLS or this ter- tertiary infrastructures also has been very much um, um, highlighted lately. There were some papers, a couple of papers, a couple of years ago uh, that I think it was like two or three papers. In, I think it was in Nature. They were in which they had this correlation that there were a correlation between like B cell. Uh, signatures and TLSs in 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 tumors and whether they're positively correlated with 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 prognos- prognosis or or response. So I think now we're trying to understand better how this works, and not just a correlation. We try to understand the mechanisms behind it and how can we harness that for therapy. Yeah, I think they're starting to poke at that, which is pretty yeah. cool. And I have this this tracer X. So um, this tracer X. Uh, Clinical trials are very interesting because they really, I don't know exactly this particular, but in general, they are very thorough and they have like samples throughout their really long cohort. And yeah, this is that group doing more work and then going back into the mice. They're milking this Tracer X uh, studies like crazy. <laughs> I mean, of course, you got to. Like, once you get the data set and can get that whole thing studied, you are going to ride that into the ground. Yeah. Through the ground and out the other side of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. Let's uh, end with our last paper of the day. Um, also a very cool immunotherapy paper. Uh, and I really liked it because it feels so um, so simple. like the 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 whole the 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 principle behind this and the the way they they go about you using it so simple that it's insane. so the 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 paper is called Engineer Skin Bacteria Induce Anti-Tumor T-Cell Responses Against Melanoma. Uh, was published in Science. First author, uh, Erin Chen, from the lab of Michael Fisbach at Stanford University. And basically what they do is they show that you can use just regular skin colonizing bacteria to elicit a non-inflammatory immune response initially uh, that can be directed at a tumor. Uh, so exactly, that's exactly what it sounds like. And I thought it was very, very cool. So the, the, the thing, the paper is fairly small. So it was a quick read and very interesting. So it was a very quick read. Um, so what they do is they, so of course you have bacteria that colonize your skin and you, you, you of course are able to detect those bacteria and you mount responses against those bacteria. But usually, unless the bacteria are detrimental or they're 
or your skin, if your skin is intact, you're not going to have a, any inflammation or any. You just have this commensal situation in which both parties are aware of each other and that's it. And so they show that if you introduce uh, an antigen in somewhere in this bacteria, so there's specifics I'll discuss uh, briefly, you can elicit a functional T-cell response against that particular antigen. And if that antigen is derived from a tumor, then that response can be redirected. The T-cells can learn uh, from the bacteria and then migrate to the tumor and do their thing. So they take a skin bacterium called Staphylococcus epidermidis and they 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 do they try a little bit how what is the best way of expressing these antigens on this bacteria so they test they compare different versions uh, of uh, of uh, epidermide epidermidis i guess would be better pronounced that expresses ova so they start with you know the 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 basic ova antigen and they either express it as a kind of a full ova antigen in the cytoplasm of the of the bacteria or they do a version which is attached to the cell wall, or they do a version which is in which is secreted out of the bacteria. And they colonize mice with these bacteria, and they do a combination. They have one bacteria that is expressing a OT1 uh, antigen that is attached to the wall of the bacteria, and then they have a, 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 a version that is expressing the OT2 antigen or the full uh, ova peptide as a, secretion, a secreted version. And they show that this is a kind of a functional combination that induces priming of both OT1 and OT2 cells. And if they combine these two, they can, uh, if they, they treat the mice with this bacteria, which is just basically, for what I understand, is they just apply the bacteria on the skin of the mouse. And they show that if they pre-treat the mice with this bacteria, they can reduce the growth of a ova of a B16 ova melanoma model that's a subcutaneous a tumor, um, and this this dependent on live bacteria. So these bacteria need to be kind of colonizing the the skin before, and there's no inflammation in this, on the application zone. So it all seems to be kind of internalized and then redirected to the tumor, and this. Um, so this works if you combine both OT1 and OT2 antigens. So uh, you do need CD4 and CD8 responses. Uh, and you do need kind of the CD8 antigen to be attached to the wall of the bacteria. And it works better if you have a secreted CD4 antigen. They also test what happens if you if you colonize. So you can um, also, also protect the mice against not only subcutaneous tumors, but also uh, IV, if you inject the, the OVA, the B16 melanoma IV, it will also protect against metastases in the mouse. And uh, you can combine it with, with checkpoint inhibition, very interesting as well. And uh, they also tested if you if you not only OVA, but they, they, they uh, isolated some new antigens from these melanoma cell lines. And then they also show that other types of antigens would also work. So if you have like the same system in which you have CD8 and CD4 antigens, you can also uh, direct the, the, the T cell response against the, the tumors. So I thought it was really kind of uh, quite remarkable that you can just uh, induce the, the, um, the response by just basically applying the, the bacteria to the skin of the mouse 
And I, and I really want to see how far they can get with this, with this kind of uh, approach is very interesting. Yeah. So it'd only be like a custom therapy for your tumor, but instead of having to give you a drug, they just slap it on your skin. Yeah. I mean, they also, I think I didn't mention, but they also do the, so they, they treat both the mice before they, they add the, they, they, they inject the tumor or also if you first, if you already uh, have the, if you first, uh, they do first the IV injection of the melanoma and then they do the treatment with the bacteria that also reduces tumor growth. So it also seems to work not only prophylactically, but also uh, after. Yeah, all I can say is, you know, the microbiome, right? I know, but yeah, everywhere. Not only the gut, but only also the skin. It's but also I, the skin. You also have some in your lung. There's a, it's all, it's, you know, everywhere you want to be. Yeah, these bacteria that get everywhere. Well, we're going to be covering some other interesting topics here in a second, uh, including uh, some interesting vaccination work. And we're going to be talking to Dr. Joshua Brody at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai about that. Before we get to that, do you do immunotherapy research like we've just been talking about? Some cell technologies offers products and protocols for immunotherapy research, including T-cell isolation, activation, and expansion reagents. You can use easy sept T-cell isolation kits to isolate highly purified T-cells in as little as eight minutes, which I know Brenda really loves because that takes less time. Follow up with immunocult reagents designed for human T-cell activation and expansion. Learn more about stem cells, optimized protocols, and reagents for immunotherapy research at www.stemcell.com slash T hyphen cell hyphen therapy. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, we're talking with Dr. Joshua Brody. He's the director of the Lymphoma Immunotherapy Program at the Tisch Cancer Institute at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And uh, he's going to talk to us about the uh, work that he does in, his, in the clinic, in his lab. The Brody Lab studies uh, basic and applied uh, tumor immunology and tumor immunotherapy and per has a particular uh, focus on lymphoma and which I think is very interesting, in-situ vaccination. We actually discussed uh, a recent publication from your lab uh, today, uh, looking at oncolytic viruses to uh, improve anti-tumor immunity in a lymphoma model. So I'm very excited to talk to, to you today, uh, Jason, as well. So welcome to the Immunology Podcast, and thanks for joining us. Brenda, Jason, thank you guys so much for having me. It is a, a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you for being here. All right. I know Brenda covered your paper, so I'm going to skip and jump with my first question clinically because you have something I know you've talked a lot about. If you look you up, you've been on the news about this before, but that doesn't mean everyone's heard about it. Um, so this whole notion of in situ vaccination, which I think is, I, I guess, a major claim to fame, the lab and the work you're doing, there's been clinical trials. So could you give like the overview of what that is for the members of the audience who may have not been familiar with the process? Yeah, yeah, this is, um, we think, a big deal. Um, we would like to say we invented the concept, but we absolutely did not. But we have put, we thought some maybe very helpful, I don't know, tweaks or optimizations to it. So the concept is real simple. Uh, let me just say by counterpoint, you know, 40, 50 years of different types of cancer vaccines. First of all, when we say cancer vaccine, we got to always clarify. We mostly mean not preventative prophylactic vaccines like we mean for the COVID vaccine and measles, mumps and all that. We mean therapeutic vaccines. You already have the disease, cancer in this case, uh, and we're trying to now give you a therapy, a, a vaccine uh, to make it get better. Uh, that's a little confusing to people. People think vaccine means preventative thing, but that's not what it means. 
vaccine just means something to make your immune system recognize the bad guy, whether the bad guy is tuberculosis, HIV, malaria, or cancer. So these are therapeutic vaccines and, you know, 50 years of different trials of these, really the vast majority of them just horrific failures, uh, quite frustrating. But in retrospect, you could say, actually, if you look at the, our understanding of, of the immunology now, it, it actually would make sense that most of these would be failures. We're very lucky to be standing on the shoulders of giants and have you know, a lot of our understanding improved. So um, nowadays we have certain, certain different types of cancer vaccines. I'll just give one quick shout out to something that was very exciting at AACR this earlier this week uh, in Orlando, which was that Moderna, the company that you've heard of that made many of our uh, COVID vaccines, um, uh, released some early randomized data about their uh, personalized melanoma vaccine. And the results were very exciting. They're not absolutely definitive because it was kind of a small trial, but it was randomized data suggesting that people that got their cancer vaccine did better than those that didn't. So that is one type of vaccine. And I just mentioned it's going to be it's going to be like a real uh, contrary sort of counterpoint to what we do, this insight to vaccine you're asking me about, because that is a vaccine that is made for each person. So a personalized vaccine. So a lot of work takes about six weeks ish um, to make it for each patient. And again, it's made separately for every patient. So incredibly resource intense. Um, and yet we saw this exciting you know, result from it. Um, but our approach, this in situ vaccine is almost the opposite. Instead of identifying the cancer antigens we want to vaccinate you against, you know, for COVID, it's real simple. We take the, you know, the antigen called the RBD part um, of, of, of their binder. Uh, that's real easy for, for, for COVID. For, you know, the Moderna cancer vaccine, and there are similar ones from BioNTech and other folks, they have to go for each person and identify the antigens. The insight to vaccine is really the opposite approach. We never, maybe after the fact, but we never a priori identify the antigens. We just say the antigens must be in there. And now just super simple vaccine 101. What is a vaccine? It is bring together, bringing together an antigen and sort of an immunogen, something to tell the immune system that antigen is a bad guy. And that can be done in a, a lab, in Moderna's lab, BioNTech's lab, or it can be done right at the site of the tumor. So that's really the punchline for insight to vaccine. It is just taking advantage of the antigens that are already there, in our case, injecting sort of a, a recipe of uh, immunogens into that tumor. So intratumoral injection of a few ingredients, we could get into the details. Um, and the, the cool thing we've seen with that, and I, and I have to say it is already a bit different in some ways, I think more exciting even than those personalized vaccines, is we treat one side of the tumor and we've seen tumors throughout the body, in the lab and in our patients with lymphoma and with breast cancer, we see other tumors melting away throughout the body, not in every patient, but we've seen some remarkable results. Uh, so that's the concept of in situ vaccine. I usually treat one site, one site of disease in situ vaccination and see other uh, large tumors melting away throughout the body. Um, so in the regarding your in situ vaccination, so as you mentioned, they are meant to treat a pre-existing tumor. And in your case, uh, what your, your lab is focusing is on without knowing which are the antigens, then you just you just try to activate the immune response. And I would like to kind of dig a little bit deeper in that sense, because it's not, not you're, it's not any type of response that you're trying to elicit with this vaccination. And there are different ways that you have found different uh, strategies to really kind of uh, bring the response to a productive uh, tumor rejection. So what did, what are the most critical aspects of this insight to vaccination that you are researching and that have made become very important 
for the development of this uh, kind of approach? Brenda, that's a real good question. Um, you know, I think when people started doing cancer vaccines back in the day, they just didn't know what the intended purpose was, make an antibody response, make a T-cell response. And our thinking, of course, has evolved a lot. Um, we think that our overall purpose is to induce, you know, CD8 anti-tumor T-cells uh, to go and kill. Maybe CD4 T-cells help a lot, but it's just in all the, you know, lab models, it always seems like CD8 T-cells are more important that may be partly or, or some degree true in patients as well. So we want to do CDA T cells and to prime CDA T cells. There's a couple different ways to do it, but we think this critical thing is to, we say, cross prime T cells. This means antigens get released out into the surface. They get eaten up by a certain subset of dendritic cells and then presented uh, to, to those CDA T cells to, to prime them. We call it cross priming because that antigen has sort of crossed um, a, a lipid water barrier to get out from the extracellular space into the uh, intracellular space of, of that dendritic cell. Anyway, the real punchline there is that, you know, we have this Nobel Prize for Immunotherapy in 2018, checkpoint blockade, very well earned, but we have this, for us, even, I don't know, more central Nobel Prize for a part of immunotherapy, the dendritic cell, because uh, nowadays in immunotherapy, we talk about the T cells all day, the, the, the soldiers that are critical, but really the general of the immune army, the dendritic cell, we would say is even more critical. It's, it's, it's the one that gives the, the soldiers their instructions. So the, um, the, the dendritic cell is super easy in the lab to show that when dendritic cells are gone, none of these cancer immunotherapies work, PD-1 blockade, all kinds of T cell transfers. Um, and we think we have evidence of the same thing in patients with different types of cancer, melanoma especially. So without dendritic cells, everything fails. So the, actually the main part of our sort of recipe um, of insight to vaccine is to mobilize to mobilize dendritic cells uh, to the tumor, and then those immune generals tell those immune soldiers, the T cells, what to do. So CD8 T cells are the goal, but dendritic cells and a certain subset of them, we call them bad F3 dendritic cells or DC1s, uh, we think are the critical linchpin to getting these things to work. So given where we're at now in the field, and your paper in 2019 had a small clinical trial in it, but you also then mentioned that, man, this is personalized. That means more development costs, more difficulty there. Where do you see this in situ technology going? Are you guys starting to pursue phase two B or pivotal trials of phase two B three? Are you like, eh, maybe the Moderna approach is just going to be more, you know, market effective as it were, you know, more reasonable for yeah. you. where are you, where's that landscape in your next steps for this whole thing? I mean, that, it's a, it's a, it's a, an important question because you got some real critical distinctions in there. So that first one is the sort of personalized versus what we call off the shelf thing. Um, and the modern approach, BioNTech approach, a few other folks, uh, Gritstone and others, this personalized approach, super elegant. But as I said, quite resource intense and with some limitations, if your cancer is growing today, you may not want to wait six weeks to get a therapy. So in that, self, in that sense, an off the shelf vaccine not personalized, not made for each person separately, um, it might be more rapidly available. And certainly in terms of what it costs to make, I mean, a tiny, tiny fraction, uh, orders of magnitude, less resource intense. So yes, this um, in situ approach is an off the shelf approach. It's not personalized in the lab. It's only personalized as the needle enters the tumor. That's the personalization, but still doesn't take, you know, weeks of prep and, and the resource intensity. So we think those sorts of therapies are a lot more practical than these very cool neoepitope vaccines. Um, your question of where are we going with it practically? I mean, <laughs> you mentioned that small trial. 
you know, that trial, it was done just in terms of total kind of time and expense compared to, you know, a, a five fifty billion dollar company doing their early phase trials. The fact that we could get that trial done uh, on the cheap kind of tells you that how much more practical this is. So the, the, the future of this is already is already happening, really. Uh, one thing we showed in that paper is that the vaccine induces T cell responses and those T cell responses sort of engender what we call adaptive resistance. The T cell shows up at the tumor, starts spitting out interferon gamma and other things, and PDL1 is upregulated at the tumor site. Not too surprisingly, all of these, uh, you know, gas pedals, interferon gamma, things that we use to, to kill cancer, um, are we say sort of bungee corded to a brake pedal. You know, the immune system is thankfully got a, a bunch of negative feedback loops built into it, so we don't get too hyperimmune. So we see PDL1 show up at the tumor site. In that in that paper, we showed that then PD1 blockade this standard therapy for many cancers now really greatly potentiated the efficacy of the vaccine. So no surprise, that has been the, the advent of the, the ongoing follow-up trial. So you're asking about getting to big phase three trials that we really would like to first get the optimal uh, vaccine working before we go and, and, and say, what's the best this can do? So that ongoing trial is uh, the vaccine plus anti-PD-1 antibody, uh, pembrolizumab, and we've also expanded now then from the lymphoma patients you saw in that first paper to add also uh, lymphoma or breast cancer patients. And actually the early results of that trial, very preliminary because the trial's still ongoing, were presented by uh, my buddy, Dr. Tom Marron, M-A-R-R-O-N, at the big SITSI meeting in November up in Boston. And that's actually the source of a lot of the press that we've gotten since then with lots of social media news organizations uh, getting the stories of some of those patients and again, some of those patients experienced, you know, partial and complete remissions of, we, I mean, the pictures were shown and probably they're on the internet. If you go to the SITSI website, you know, regressions of bulky tumors that had been absolutely refractory to many, many prior lines uh, of chemotherapies. So while in some ways those uh, very cool neoapitope vaccines are further along than ours is, they're in randomized trials already, in some ways, this stuff that I'm describing, inducing regressions of bulky chemorefractory tumors, has not been shown by any other approaches. So rather than saying, you know, what's better, A versus B, the, the two have shown different things so far. Um, so, yeah, and I do think this approach is probably more practical uh, than other approaches. I also wonder if different tumors might respond differently to one or the other. Do you think there's something about lymphoma or in this or breast cancer that would differentiate it from other traditionally uh, tumors traditionally treated with well, traditionally recently treated with immunotherapy like melanoma or small lung uh, uh, um, carcinoma or colon cancer things like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. We don't have so far great biomarkers from the lab studies from the from the trials of who will or won't respond. It would be great for us to get those. We're trying to get some of that to predict who will get the most benefit. I mean, at first glance, you'd think that, you know, tumor mutational burden, TMB, which is kind of a predictor, not, not a great one, for who will respond to anti-PD-1 antibodies. It should still be some predictor here because ultimately if you don't have the antigens to present, it doesn't matter how many dendritic cells, how many immune generals are brought to the site. You need, you know, you need the antigen to presenting cell, the, the, the DC, but you also need the antigen. So you'd think TMB would have something to do with it. In our small studies, we can't show a clear correlation, but the, they're just too small so far. Um, ultimately, the, the real answer has been a practical one that you know, heard me say that part of the therapy currently requires intratumoral injections of some of these immune stimulants. 
And therefore, research is sort of practically limited to, it would be hard for us to treat pancreas cancer on these kinds of trials so far. It is doable, it's just real hard. You know, we do have trials with intratumoral injections of lung cancer and liver cancer using sonograms and, uh, and CAT scans, but it's just a lot harder. So we have started with just a practical limitation of superficially accessible tumors. We hope we could prove the principle there and then ultimately be, move on to other tumor types. Um, things like melanoma, you'd think probably would be great candidates, but the truth is, you know, you'd have to start, start on a patient that already had been refractory to anti-PD-1, uh, probably because just so few, so few patients haven't already received it, um, and that's already a different subset of patients. So we started with lymphoma and breast partly for the practical reasons, and partly because at least they do have decent tumor mutational burdens, so they both seem reasonable. We think it could be applied to a bunch of other types as well, yeah. So it sounds like ongoing trial adding in the PD-1, which makes this good next step. And maybe you can't say this because of business stuff or stealth mode, but then, ten, then just do this at your institution and have the trial come out as intent, make a company that gets this going because you need the vaccine component. Some of this stuff already exists. Obviously, the PD-1 is a drug that's on the market. Or do you guys have a path forward or you're going to prove the principle and figure it out later, which is also, you know, very classic approach. Yeah. Um, such a real world question. Um, I'm in biotech. That's all he cares about the real world. Yeah. Well, the real world is where human beings exist. So, you know, we're real, real happy to, you know, to help a few mice here and, and the mouse's family is always real appreciative, but you know, we really like to help real people and real people exist in the real world. And the way we've been doing this is sort of an academic approach. Yeah, we only help to help, you know, small numbers of people, you know, dozens at a time, but but not thousands at a time. So the real answer probably is um, not, it actually might be about new companies because we, you know, have worked on that in a few directions, but the most rapid for us approach is just to, you know, be doing this with uh, biotech or big pharma. And so we have uh, big pharma groups that are enthusiastic about this approach, about sort of these recipes. Um, and so it's about doing with them, but then, yeah, after that's a bunch of backroom secret stuff that um, uh, I, I'd go to jail. So we do luckily have uh, uh, some people with the resources who do believe in this approach, or actually some of them quite passionate about it. Um, and that's going to be the first step in pushing this forward, yeah, do bigger trials. I, I really like the uh, concepts that don't require a huge degree of personalization. I think we should definitely try to go for. Uh, more generic solutions because many cancers would probably respond because it makes the logistics a lot easier. I am familiar with, as you mentioned, the times that it takes to to make new antigen-specific um, therapies, uh, and it's just patients not fall through the cracks in those times. And I think there's there if if if, if I feel sometimes a little bit cynical, people say, well, you know, that's where the pharma companies are usually not interested because. Uh, revenues are limited when you have a fairly simple approaches. But I like to believe that if the, the ideas are good, then you can find partners uh, within industry to to move these things forward. Yeah, I mean, if the uh, if the COVID vaccine had to be personalized, we'd all be sitting in March 2020 today still um, and, and all still deep in the apocalypse. So yeah, you do need some off-the-shelf approaches to help the largest numbers of people. Um, and the practical approach is important. And, you know, speaking of COVID, you know, you got the high-tech stuff and the low-tech stuff. You know, we have cool antiviral therapies, some fancy, we had, you know, antibody immunoglobulin infusions. But, you know, what was the lifesaver in COVID? 
it was steroids. It was dexamethasone. And yeah, if dexamethasone had to go get intellectual property around it today, it would be a little tricky. Um, capitalism is an awesome system. Some things can a little bit fall through the cracks with capitalism. Um, yeah, we have to find some kind of road uh, to to thread both of those needles. Didn't someone try? Didn't someone repatent colchicine a long time a while ago because like it was never actually patented, and so someone decided to do it, and then that became a whole lawsuit. Uh, there is repatenting things, and there's also just taking things, not even bothering to repatent them, but just increasing the cost of them a thousandfold, and hopefully. I will mention that guy's name there because there's a few of that guy. Um, uh, and, uh, and and hopefully those things do not work out to be too profitable for people. Yeah, but but putting these two things together can be tricky. I am a personally a capitalist, but yeah, some stuff does not get optimally served by capitalism. Yeah, sometimes, so, yeah, sometimes not everything is solved by a market. Yeah, not everything. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, we think that... Um, uh, you know, you, you, Brenda was pointing at the cynicism of, you know, oh, if these things are too simple, then people will not push them forward. I think great things um, can, you know, rise to the top. They won't always naturally rise up. They need, they need some people to help lift them up there a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think that these things can go forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. So you talked about dendritic cells as the other thing, and you have a, a recent paper on that tying back to your viral therapy. So you know, I kind of view them as like a quarterback almost of an immune system, kind of the, the, the play caller. So you have these insights that DCs are more important than maybe we've appreciated in the past. What do you think that mean? What a little bit about that insight? And what does that mean for therapy going forward? Does that mean we need to shift some of our technologies that have been incidentally hitting DCs on the side to target them more directly or, or what have you? What do you think there? That is exactly what it means. And you know, Jason, you're interested in, you know, biotech and pharma, and therefore you see that there are a lot of brilliant people, champions, women and men who just innovate. And there are also a lot of lemmings, people that just follow people regardless of where they're going. And once you have a huge success like PD-1 blockade, NCTLA-4 blockade, then, you know, lemmings will just insist that T-cells are the mechanism of, uh, of cancer regressions and therefore, let's just do nothing but T-cell targeted therapies. And it's not unreasonable thinking, but it's very limited thinking. And, you know, it's not that dendritic cells are a new idea. I mean, Nobel Prize 2011, uh, Ralph Steinman alongside, you know, doctors Butler and Hoffman for the TLRs that helped to turn DCs on. So, you know, the, the, the Nobel Committee acknowledged them. We should um, acknowledge them more. There are a few companies that are going after um, both mobilizing and then, uh, you know, tumor recruiting uh, DCs. But my God, for the amount of power they have as the quarterback in the American football system or as the general of the army, any metaphor, they are controlling things. And it's so easy to see how they're controlling things by, as has been done so many times now, just getting rid of them in the, in the lab models. And you see that everything fails without them. So if everything fails without them, everything, checkpoint blockade, every therapy, then you think hmm, maybe more of these could be better. I guess I'm slightly taken aback by your remarks on T-cells, being a T-cell fan myself. So listeners of the show would know that, you know, I'm I'm very invested in T-cells, but I do think that soldiers need a general and even the best sniper doesn't, doesn't know what to do if he doesn't get the instructions. And I, I do appreciate the role in that sense. Listen, the metaphor is fair because a general by himself is zero, is nothing, right? Without the soldier, not, there's no war to be won. 
but you know, again, we've we've acknowledged nothing but the soldier uh, for these last few years, I think. So yeah, to to know that an army needs some guidance, I I, I think is what's been lacking uh, over the last few years. Yeah. What do you think are um, the best or uh, currently the tools that we have to direct the right DCs to the right place? So in your in your last paper, you men, you you study or you evaluated the the, the, the power of flit uh, flit three ligand uh, to really induce this particular CDC one um, subset. Uh, is this the only tool that we have or are there other things we can do to really get these generals on the field? Yeah, we have to get them on the field and then into maybe just the, the right place as well, the tumor and the tumor draining lymph node. Um, FLIT3L is just, the, you know, the most studied and explored and longest precedent, uh, one of those, and partly because it's the one that we, all of us, the three of us right now and everyone in the audience is using today to make the dendritic cells we do have in our body. Um, you know, we sometimes say that it is the erythropoietin of dendritic cells. You know, you've got EPO for red cells, GCSF for neutrophils, you know, GMCSF for certain other myeloid subsets, and you've got FLT3 for DCs. It's a little over oversimplified because FLT3L actually does mobilize a few other sets as well. But um, it's certainly probably the, the best precedent of mobilizing DC1s uh, into the periphery or just, you know, uh, getting the progenitors to make more. Um, whether that's the best way to get them to the tumor is really a, a super unasked question, I would say. Maybe uh, there's something better, something like certain chemokines. Maybe one example could be XCL1, uh, which is probably one of the more famous chemokines that recruits DC1s to the tumor. Um, and it would be nice to be able to ask some of these questions you know, with higher bandwidth, be able to make, I'll uh, just hypothesize a thing, lipid nanoparticles for all of the possible chemokines that might recruit DCs and compare them head to head to head. Because, you know, most of these papers are not doing a lot of, you know, fair comparison amongst the candidates. So if you say, who's the best chemokine for this? I might say XCL1 just because it has the most papers about it, the most studies, but it doesn't mean it's the best. So yeah, critical question. FLIT3L, the best president of mobilizing DCs, but yeah, recruiting them to the tumor, very, I, I think, fairly unasked question um, and, and, and a juicy one that, that academics and biotech uh, can be asking now. All right. So I think we have time for one more DC question before we 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 get to the the end end part of this. And let's clarify, we mean DC dendritic cells, not the DC cinematic universe with the Superman and the Wonder Woman and all that. People are going to get confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Um, Although like right now I think that's on life support. Yeah, it's on life support. Yeah, the poor deers. All right. So dendritic cells, they're they're the generals. We're not targeting them well. Do you think this is going to be an approach with with the like the vaccination therapy you're doing where you can get them to turn on in conjunction with a stimulant? Do you think there's just straight old small molecule agonists like what you've talked about that we could go after? Like where where do you think if if the notion of dendritic cells that is the low hanging fruit that no one's gone after? What is the first thing you do that can, again, practically speaking, do you think can get something to help patients in the sooner future versus the later future? Where does this evolve from here practically? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, unfortunately, some people perceived, I think, some low-hanging fruit that was so low it was probably, you know, on the ground and and maybe getting rotten. And and am I allowed to curse on this podcast? I can't remember. I think there have been some half-assed approaches at dendritic cell focus. 
And and people have injected, and, and you know, we are certainly you know, guilty and been part of all of this. I'm injecting TLR agonists and sting agonists and other things that turn on myeloid cells into tumors. Uh, reasonable, maybe elegant, but problem is if you're trying to turn on dendritic cells, but there are none in the tumor to begin with, uh, that's a half-assed approach. And that's not low-hanging fruit. That's, you know, that's, that's bad fruit. Um, and, and unfortunately, when we have, you know, bad poster children of a concept, it, it sullies the concept a little bit. So people could say, well, oh, we've, we've targeted dendritic cells. We injected this TLR agonist into this tumor. Yeah, dude, there was no dendritic cells in that tumor. So you were just injecting a medicine there without a target. So anyway, if the question is how can we, uh, you know, get this to be uh, available in uh, multiple modalities, you have different versions of FLT3 ligand, because actually the version we were using is a bit pharmacokinetically suboptimal. So better versions of that um, have been created um, and are uh, near to accessible. Um, and then there probably are other even more elegant ways of small molecule agonists um, although, you know, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how they would be better than some of the, uh, pharmacokinetically improved versions of FLT3L, but that's just for the mobilization for the tumor recruitment. Yeah. Big open question and not such a hard question to ask. I, I think a lot of this stuff, the, the, you know, mice are not humans, but some things translate well. Um, and probably there's a lot of correlation between optimal chemokines to bring CCs to tumors, um, between the lab and, and the clinic. So. I think there's a lot of opportunity for answering those questions quickly. Yeah, getting disease to the tumor. Well, let's see what the future brings and what the advances are. I think the genetic cells, of course, have a lot of to deliver. And with some luck, we can break the code on how to get them in the right place at the right time and do the right thing. Uh, and on that note, so we are... Uh, approaching the end of our conversation. Uh, and we like to ask our guests uh, some questions that are not necessarily related to their work, their scientific work. Um, so we're going to ask you, uh, Joshua, if besides the maybe how to get the right dendritic cells in the right place, if you could answer any single scientific question, uh, regardless of your expertise or your or your field of study, what would you what would you answer? I have to say one that is um, so controversial, it might get edited out, but let's just, uh, you asked me a question, I'll give you an honest answer. Uh, here's the question to answer. Um, if um, Ireland and, Nor and Northern Ireland can solve their problems, um, can, we, can, we, can we find those same solutions for the Middle East? <laughs> that might be the too hard one and too big of a one, but you have people that could not get along and now they get along much better. I don't know if it's perfect, but you know, I was visiting last year, it was lovely. Um, you know, you have people that can't get along and now they get along better. Can we bring that to other people? You know, and 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 unfortunately, I'm a poor student of history. So the many different players and characters in one situation are different than the other. But, you know, the concept is that people that did not get along can get along better. Um, so that might be a bit distant uh, from the military analogies we use for getting rid of cancer. Um, but yeah, getting rid of some of those problems would be great. It's well beyond my expertise, but I just feel like there's precedent for it to be successful. That's that's a really good point. All right, I have another one for you that's equally controversial: Marvel or DC, and why? Uh, well, I mean, you know, ask me in 2019, and it's Marvel, no problem. It's easy. But uh, Phase Four, uh, you know, once you start mass producing things, it's always hard to keep quality um, at the level. Once things leave the hands of the artists and go to the money people, um, yeah, the answer is Marvel um, because I'm an eternal optimist and I was raised on it. 
and I, you know, I read DC, but I was raised on Marvel. Um, as for many of us nerds, it got, you know, it got us through tough times. If you're shoved into a locker, if you can find a flashlight, there's a Marvel comic there with you. So, you know, it, it was a big deal. Um, and I've been a longtime fan and some of it they're still doing right, but they have a lot of precedent of success. Um, I'm still a fan of Spider-Man and Tom Holland, I think is delightful. So I'm very hopeful for the future. There you go. Well, yeah, maybe Marvel and DC can get along in the future. You never know. That would be amazing. Can't you have like a, like a condensed universe where both of them are together? They had that in the comics for a little while. Uh, the nerds freaked out about it. We completely lost our stuff. Like, oh my God. Um, and they would have like a, you know, a tough guy fight a tough guy. Wolverine fought Lobo or something. Captain America fought Batman. It was very exciting. I mean, sorry, for nerds, it was very exciting. For regular people, it was, what the hell are these people yelling about? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I know, right? We just have to be innovative. We just have to think outside the box. I, I agree with you completely, Brenda. Good call. <laughs> I want our audience to just know that both Jason and Joshua have like this this twinkle in their eyes. Uh, it's, it's very fun to watch. Uh, clearly a very a, a subject very close to their heart, and I hope to many of our listeners. Um, I don't know what's wrong with DC Universe, but I guess Marvel is better now I know. Speaking of the future, you have some postdoc positions open on your website. I don't know if you want a quick plug to the internet here before we go. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I'll tell you, um, I don't know if you guys heard about it in the news, but a few years ago, we had a president who was not super welcoming to um, from people around the world. Um, things have been changed up here in America. Oh, sorry. If you're not familiar with America, it's right next to Canada. It's near Mexico. It's lovely, really lovely. <laughs> um, and there's especially one gorgeous part of it. It's called Uh, New York. Uh, well, we pronounce it New York, but uh, you know, you, you're familiar with it. Never heard of it. Mm. It's right next to Jersey. If you've gone to Jersey, oh, just keep oh, going. It's one more. Like on the other yeah. side of Hoboken, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, oh, so yes. we're talking yes. about the same place. Very exciting time in New York. We've recently, uh, we just got a Starbucks, so pretty excited about that. <laughs> um, so these are big times. And I got to say, people come from all around the world, They like to come to New York because we have people of everything and restaurants of every nationality, ethnicity and formulation. It's a delicious place to eat. Um, and we have a postdoc position um, for people with you know real deep interest in, in immunology and tumor immunotherapy. And I, I will happily say that our lab ethos is just a very friendly, collaborative thing, both in my lab and in the, you know, the, our partnering labs. Uh, labs of Miriam Murad and Nina Bardwaj and Brian Brown and Samir Parekh and others. And Some neighbors. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a pleasant place, uh, you know, good food um, and nice people. Um, people don't always realize those things about New York, but it's, it's a pleasant place. So, yes, please send us an email. Please come apply. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you very much. My pleasure, guys. It was great to talk to you today. Thank you for joining uh, our podcast. Jason, Brenda, thank you guys so much. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, and which include an episode summary and links to all of the interview and the roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have any feedback or you would like to suggest a guest. We're always open to that. See you next time.